Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 35. After Hours with Brooke Medina. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, and it's therefore an After Hours episode. And the origin of today's After Hours episode is a little bit unusual. You see, from time to time, I'll hop onto Twitter and just see what people are saying about C.S. Lewis. And I was on Twitter earlier this week, and I came across the following tweet. A 2021 goal I have is to be invited onto a podcast wherein the only expectation made of me is to gush about C.S. Lewis's essays that specifically touch on audience and science fiction. Oh, and explore how he employs landscape. And there's a lot of negativity on Twitter. It's actually quite a dumpster fire day in, day out. So it was just so refreshing to see such a laudable aspiration for 2021. And so I thought to myself, you know what? I can make this happen. And so with that, Brooke Medina, welcome to Pints with Jack. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm just so glad that Twitter has an effective search function so that you were able to catch <laughs> that tweet. And I was able to to uh, immediately, with all joy, respond in the affirmative that I was going to be on this podcast. So thanks for having me. You're welcome. And it's great to finally talk to you. Uh, it became very clear to me just from glancing at your Twitter feed and from the first few messages that we exchanged that we would quickly become friends. Uh, for example, you uh, you spoke about publicly shaming people who misquote C.S. Lewis, which is near and dear to my heart. Name, oh, absolutely. I that, that is one of those things that just really, I know that maybe some people think it's petty, but I feel like if you're going to misquote Jack, it's it's just right under misquoting scripture. Like, I mean, I know it's not there. It's not canonized, but it's right under there. And so people should be shamed. They should be embarrassed. And Pinterest is rife with it. So I, I've got lots of thoughts on that, but I know we're trying to be positive. So I'll <laughs> Yes. And we have a we have a positive mission here at Pines with Jack. That's why our Instagram is filled with legitimate cited quotations from C.S. Lewis. We are going to drown out all of the uh, all of the incorrect ones that everyone seems so intent on sharing. You're doing God's work. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and in our message exchange, you helped me realize that if anyone ever started a podcast discussing the works of Lewis's brother, Warney Lewis, which are excellent in their own right, that it should be named after his childhood nickname, Large Piggy Bottom. I think Large Piggy Bottom and C.S. Lewis was referred to as Small Piggy Bottom by their nanny is just the most adorable nickname. Like, I, I just, it's hard to think and envision a person as being a bit of a crank or, you know, sometimes we have that that concept of old writers that they're cranky or whatever if they're so serious. But when you think of Lewis and his brother Warney in terms of piggy bottoms, it just makes everything a little happier. <laughs> I agree. Now, I'm a creature of habit, so we're not going to be dispensing with our usual episode elements. So we have to begin with the quote of the week. And since we're going to be discussing books and books that we both love, I chose an excerpt from a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote to his childhood friend, Arthur Greaves. Lewis wrote, I can't imagine a man really enjoying a book and reading it only once. And the next thing is our drink of the week. And you made the suggestion on this one, Ardbeg. Uh, is that because it's your favorite kind of scotch? 
So I am still developing my Scotch library. I have discovered that I like a number of them. I like Talisker. I enjoy Ardbeg, though, in particular, but Glymphidich and things like that. So I'm still learning. Um, I will admit that. However, I mean, if you're going to start with Ardbeg, you're essentially going big or going home. And Ardbeg is a very yummy scotch. It's pretty strong, very peaty. And uh, anyways, it, it just feels, because it was my first scotch, it, it feels comforting. And it feels like a an anchor in terms of drinks. <laughs> I know I know what you mean. I, I have very strong memories associated with particular kinds of scotches. But those all of those scotches that you named, that, that's quite impressive because those are typically of the more uh, aggressive, boggy kind of scotches. And when I first tried to introduce my wife to scotches, I went for the far sweeter, softer end and she wasn't having any of it. So I gave up trying and I just carried on drinking you know, my Laphroaigs and my Lagavulins. And then just oh, yes, that- yes. And then just every now and again, she would just sort of peer over at what I was drinking and saying, can I have a sip of that? And so it turns out that my wife is exactly the same. Give her the the, the peaty, strong, smoky scotches and she's super happy. Yes. Well, you know what? That just means we don't want invitations. We want the real deal, a full immersion in proper scotch <laughs> baptism. Well, I also poured myself an Ardbeg and I looked up some tasting notes from Michael Jackson's Complete Guide to Single Malt Scotch. This isn't the Michael Jackson that everyone is currently thinking of. Uh, It said color, pale gold, nose, sweet with soft peat, carbonic soap. This is one of the things I love about Scotch tasting notes. They don't hide when it's like, yeah, this sort of tastes like cleaner. Uh, So carbonic soap and smoked fish. The body is medium firm and the palate burning peats and dried fruit, followed by malt and a touch of licorice with a long and smoky finish. Fine balance of cereal sweetness, iodine, and dry peat. <laughs> Would you say that's about right? I, I think that's accurate. I'd say that hits all the notes. And since we've got a drink going, we should probably have a toast. Now, normally we toast a gold-level Patreon supporter, but I thought today we might toast the entirety of Twitter for helping make this episode happen. So Twitter, thank you for not being a complete dumpster fire. Cheers. Cheers. So can you just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you first came across Lewis? Sure. So uh, I think I would like to begin by telling about myself, not by what I do as my day job, but just who I am as a reader. And um, and then we can go from there. But, uh, you know, ever since I was in first grade, I've been an avid reader. I remember just many a rainy days. I, I lived in Germany at the time. My dad was in the military, so we were stationed there. And I would just curl myself up in a in a big chair and I would read boxcar children. Like I just loved boxcar children. I loved mysteries. And then I advanced onto uh, Sherlock Holmes mysteries and went that route. And so one of my uh, first memories, though, of Halloween when we lived in Germany was actually that I, I was eventually turned on to Little House on the Prairie, which is obviously a departure from mysteries. But I wanted to be Laura Ingalls Wilder for Halloween. And so while other kids were dressed (laughs) up like witches or Rainbow Bright, because I'm a child of the 80s and early 90s, um, I was Laura Ingalls Wilder. And so I just, I've always had that nerdy strain and I really have no desire to cover it up. And so I fully embrace it. But, um, you know, I didn't become familiar with Lewis's work until my senior year in college 
And, uh, you know, it was, there was an opportunity for me to take a, a, a seminar on him. And so that was when I really did a deep dive into his works. Uh, up until then, you know, I was familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. I had heard about some of mere Christianity and things like that, but I hadn't really wrestled with his works myself. And so uh, I remember one night as I was reading Surprised by Joy, his autobiography, and uh, he referred to George MacDonald, who was a 19th century author, and he he referred to MacDonald as having baptized his imagination uh, in the book Fantasties, which I'm currently reading through right now. Me too. My wife and I started it two days ago. <laughs> oh, I started it like two weeks ago, and I'm I'm slow. I'm a slow reader. That's another thing about me. I am not a fast reader, and and I'm just I'm a slow runner and a slow reader. But uh, you know what? I I stick with it. So. Anyways, Fantasties is great. I'd love to discuss that further with you. But what McDonald did for Lewis is what Lewis did for me. And he really not only just my imagination, uh, baptizing that for lack of a better term, but just really helping me think through some of the deeper questions I had about the Christian faith. Wonderful. And so from there, I'm assuming you started reading some of Lewis's books, which, we have, which have been your favorite. Oh, wow. Uh, so... I didn't, uh, you know, one one thing, a lot of people come to Lewis through the wardrobe, Chronicles of Narnia. I came to him through the wormhole is what I say, which is his space trilogy. Uh, in particular, that hideous strength, which is the third installment of his space trilogy. Um, the first two I thought were okay. Um, but the third really, really struck a note with me. And, uh, you know, if someone hasn't read the space trilogy, I, I would just say, if you are someone that is interested in cultural commentary and just kind of looking looking at culture through a different lens um, and postmodernism, you can just go straight to that hideous strength and find that and you can read it as a standalone. But when Lewis began to uh, introduce Merlin as this time traveler and you, you see just the way in which he inserts myth and what some would call just like completely fantastical elements into this commentary on the um, decline of culture, I, that just resonated with me. So that was, that was originally my first favorite book of Lewis's. Wow. That's a tough one. A lot of people don't like that. And when people say it to me, I usually send them to Lewis's parallel text to that, which is the abolition of man so that they can wrestle with some of the concepts and then return to the fiction. And sidebar, Dr. Michael Ward will be coming on the show very soon to talk about his new book about the abolition of men. But yeah, The Hideous Strength, that's not an easy read. No, it's not. And so I, I can understand why my son, who is starting to engage with Lewis a little bit more, uh, he was originally turned off by that one. So uh, then I said, okay, we'll back up and go to the Out of the, out of the Silent Planet. And oh, so you he sent him straight planet. there. I, I did, <laughs> but he also read screw tape letters. I wasn't that mean. <laughs> I made sure that he, he had some lighter reading, <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, you know, that hideous strength though, I just, I thought it was fascinating and it's been a couple of years since I've read it again, but toward the end, which, Oh, I don't know. What's the rule on spoilers on the show? Are uh, we allowed to? Maybe not spell out everything, but you can certainly talk about some of the themes and things that have happened. 
we actually had somebody write to us recently and said, you keep spoiling the ending of Till We Have Faces because you're referencing it this season. It's like, go back and do that previous season. That's just how that rule works. Uh, but <laughs> if we're talking about books that we haven't done on this show, I, I think keep it somewhat veiled uh, as to exactly what, what goes on. But you can definitely talk about some of, the, some of the themes and some of the imagery that's there. Okay. Good to know. Uh, but just, you know, I, I think... The strand of C.S. Lewis that he takes when it comes to art, what we allow our eyes to focus on and what we what we consider success is similar in some ways to um, someone, a philosopher that I'm as of late beginning to engage more with, which is Roger Scruton, who um, talks about the nature of beauty and um, is an aesthetic. And so just thinking through the 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 scenery in that hideous strength and uh, the way in which the uh, the the opposition uh, kind of makes life drab and things like that. I think uh, I think that's something that really resonated with me. I don't want to give too much away, but but I just think that there are some lessons there when we look at the world around us and how often things look so bleak. And even when you walk through a modern art museum hmm. and there's just there's something missing in a lot of it, in my opinion, and I'm maybe someone who is a modern art fan is listening to this and feels viscerally offended by that. And I'm don't sorry. Care. But... Don't care. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm of exactly the same position. So I was a very arty kid up until about the age of 10, 11, 12, when I discovered computers. And then basically my soul died and I just was programming ever since. But when I had the opportunity to come to the States, I began in Washington, D.C., working for a company there. And I was right on the National Mall. So I would go to the art galleries there very regularly. And they have the best stuff in the world. And they have an East and West Wing, one containing uh, art from antiquity, another, let's just say it's a little bit more modern. And I tried, I really tried to get into it and understand it. But I'm sorry. No, I just thought it was stupid. Well, okay. I don't feel so bad then. You're you uh you made that very clear for the audience, and I just can say a hearty amen. I second that. I am not a fan of modern art. I will say, if any listeners, if you love modern art and you think I'm wrong, I will happily talk to you. You can show me why I'm wrong. But all I'm saying is, I for three months—that's how long I was there—I really tried, but it just seems so random. I appreciate art that is aspirational, that it calls us higher. Same with architecture. And, and so um, that's something that, like I said, I've been I've been uh, embarking on a journey with Roger Scruton, Sir Roger Scruton, on uh, on just the nature of beauty. And um, and actually, there's just this all interconnectedness and you can get us back on track. But <laughs> I just have to say this too: um, what Roger Scruton talks about in terms of beauty, Peter Crave, who really turned me on to till we have faces. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a he's a philosopher out of Boston College, but he talks about how art is warfare in its own way when you think about uh the way in which art was um was a a vehicle for the gospel in a lot of ways and pushing back darkness in a, in in very very dark times and so i just think that's a powerful way to look at art whether for good or for ill and if you read that hideous strength toward the end you you see that there is an attempt to corrupt a mind through just a barrage of of hollow and sterile utilitarian quote unquote art yeah 
Yeah. It was funny. When I was first reading The Great Divorce, when we meet the artist and we're told that his first medium was light, that was what the thing that he loved. It immediately took me back to those three months in Washington, D.C. when I was touring the museum and I was going through the Impressionist Gallery and seeing the, the, the little specks of light uh, coming through the pictures. That was immediately where I was taken. Not a lot of the, frankly, utilitarian and rather dull stuff in the other wing. Yeah. But you just mentioned till we have faces, and we, we chatted a little bit about that on Twitter. Uh, what was your journey with that book? Because like Hideous Strength, it's definitely a book which separates out Lewis fans. It does. It does. I have had a couple of very good faith disagreements with some friends on this that are also Lewis fans. Um, one of them in particular, she loves the Chronicles of Narnia, and that is not one that I'm as drawn to, admittedly. But we we came down on two different sides of Till We Have Faces. But I'll just admit this off the bat. Uh, Till We Have Faces was one of those gems that I didn't fully appreciate my first read through. Absolutely. Uh, I enjoyed mythology to a degree, but uh, this one didn't grab me at first, and it wasn't until I got a hold of Peter Crafe, who I referenced earlier, his literary analysis of it, uh, that this second century myth, it's a myth retold is how Lewis casts it of Psyche and Cupid. And um, I know your audience is familiar with the story because you all covered it, I believe, last season. Spoiler warning ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but... Uh, but those of us that might need a refresher, uh, the story centers on an ugly princess named Oriwal in the land of Gloam. And she lives in this – Gloam is a third-rate fictitious land, and it's uh, on the brink of a mass unrest. And Oriwal's father, the king, is convinced by a misguided priest that the land will find prosperity again if only he sacrifices his youngest daughter, which is a beautiful and compassionate young woman that we refer to as Psyche throughout there. And Psyche is sacrificed and Oriwell is bitterly angry at Ungit, the god of the land. So there's uh, there there's just a brief little background on it. But two themes that in the book that really had an impact on me. And I, I started rereading Till We Have Faces a few months ago. And I'm one of those people, maybe you are too, David, where you just read a few books at a time. You don't just isolate it to one. And I kind of go back and forth and graze. I get less done, but I still do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, same here. Same here. I, if I want to read a book from start to finish, I'm doing an audiobook. But if I want to graze and I want to annotate, which I annotate just about in all of my books, I do not believe books should just look new. They, they definitely need to look lo well loved. Exactly. I also think of it as like paying something, paying it forward. So at some point, my books are going to end up in somebody else's library. Either I'm going to give them away, I'm going to take them to a secondhand charity shop, or eventually I'm going to die and someone else is going to take my books. And I love the idea of somebody reading, say, one of Lewis's works and seeing my thoughts on it in the margins. Yes, yes. So do I. I, I feel like that's a, I want to leave that to my children. And Hopefully one of them appreciates it. At least I have four. So odds are. Well, they're flicking through it. It's like, oh, mom's ruined another book. <laughs> mom's such a messy annotator, too. But um, two of the themes in that book, Till We Have Faces, is uh, one that most uh, most markedly just made me wrestle with um, some things in my own life was the disparate fruits of healthy and unhealthy loves. Um, you know, St. Augustine talks about disordered loves and the importance of ordering our loves. And I think that in this story, we see 
how Oriwell is is dealing with with loving the wrong things in a way that actually chokes the life out of them. And how we can do that, too, when we make secondary things our primary thing. And, uh, you know, it, it just it provided many channels on many in throughout many different chapters for me to reflect on that and and just consider ways in which, you know, my love. I think it was in the screw tape letters or the great divorce where it talks about a mother and her her misguided love for her son. That was the great divorce. And uh, I mean, honestly, the theme of motherly love gone wrong appears throughout Lewis's books, most probably because of Minto, the old lady that he was living with. Uh, but yeah, the, I think the one you're thinking of is from the great divorce. Yes, yes. Okay, thank you. And yeah, I mean, you're right. There is a theme throughout a number of his books on this. And just even thinking through the fact that he lost his mother at a young age and perhaps was really craving that sort of motherly love, which led to that relationship that you you mentioned and that it, it was a difficult relationship for Lewis. He also talks about it in the companion book to Till We Have Faces, which is The Four Loves, where Lewis goes through and enumerates the different kinds of loves, how each of them can go wrong and how they each need to be ordered and, and infused with divine love in order to prevent them from going wrong. Yeah. Yeah. There's There are so many lessons there. And I think Oriwell's story and her her unhealthy love for psyche uh, just just highlights highlights um, how we in our own lives need to grapple with with love and you know think of love in different terms like Lewis talks about the four different loves which comes from scripture agape phileo eros and which one am I missing here agape Okay, agape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or you say it a very Oh, I'm, I'm utterly confused. I've heard too many people pronounce it too many different ways. I just I just wing it each time. <laughs> yes, but uh, how could I th- forget that one, though? That's the God kind of love. Mm-hmm. And so uh, anyways, I just I just think that's a beautiful theme in that story. But also a, th- a second one is that holy places are dark places. And I think this is a this is a more nuanced heavy concept that's in this story, uh, the God Unget. And uh, Peter Kraft postures that Unget is a representation of God and um, and that we are all Oriwell and we can't fully understand and and wrestle with the complexities of Unget and what Oriwell initially perceives as injustices by the gods, namely Unget and her son. are really just a failure to understand, you, you know, the compassion and the kindness of God. And, uh, and just, you know, oftentimes we misunderstand the sufferings that we go through in life. And Lewis addresses this in the problem of pain, as well as a grief observed, but we interpret those as God's discipline or an, an unjust, an injustice from him. Whereas really it's, it's his path to liberation in some ways. There's a quote in his autobiography, which I just I just love. I keep going back to it, and it actually harkens back to something he wrote in The Problem of Pain in Chapter 3. But in his autobiography, he says, The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. And um, I'm sure you, like me, David, and everybody listening, there are seasons of life where we go through 
uh, immense suffering and we don't quite understand what it is and why it is. But I just think about even what we perceive as God's hardness continues to be a signpost that leads us onto that path um, of sanctification. Absolutely. And I recently reread the Confessions of St. Augustine, and he has several parallel passages, which I'm sure Lewis had in mind when he was writing that sort of thing. When Augustine speaks about the way uh, God, uh, God was trying to break into his life and that Augustine was looking everywhere else for what he was, what he was searching for, but it was ultimately God. And then it was when he found God, that's where he found peace. Now, since your friend isn't here to defend him or herself, let's talk about why they're wrong. So why didn't they like Till We Have Faces? Her primary argument was, I just couldn't get into it. <laughs> oh, I completely agree. My, my remedy is read it again. Because <laughs> earlier when you said that you read things slowly, Till We Have Faces is one of those books I think you have to. The first time Matt read it, he blazed through it and he went, what was that? <laughs> but I read it along through with the season. So as we were recording an episode each week, I was just getting another chapter at a time and I really had time to ruminate on it. And that prevents what Andrew calls the till we have faces whiplash when you get to the end. It's like, wait, what was that? What just happened? So if she just, if her primary issue was the fact that she feel like she didn't get it. Yeah, it's, it's a definitely a hard book. Didn't get drawn into it. Yeah, it's difficult. Uh, but I would just say you, you just got to go back and read it again. Because I think everybody when they read that book, even if they didn't like it, they still know that there was stuff going on in it that they can't quite get their arms around, that they think there's something possibly quite clever going on, but they're not quite sure what it is. Oh, I, lo I love the way you just said that. And I couldn't agree more because like I said, the first time I read it, I read it out of compulsion. I had to do it for, for an assignment. Um, and I remember I was basically on the other end of this argument, the first go around. And I had a classmate who said, no, till we have faces is absolutely my favorite work by Lewis. And I was on the other side of team hideous strength. And, <laughs> you know, so we're, we're going at it and sparring, but it really had to do with the fact that I, I think I was trying to mine gems out of it without actually appreciating it for what it was. So I was trying to fit my own preconceived idea of what Lewis was going to say to me through mm -hmm. it versus letting the story speak for itself. And this is really where Lewis talks about this. And I know we're going to get to his essays, but he talks about this in one of his essays about just just tell a good story is essentially what he's saying. You don't have to worry about infusing a moral with it. We see this, it, you know, parents of small children, they'll see it infused in some of these just twaddleish children's shows and children's books where it's just like, there's a moral and I'm like going to cram this <laughs> circular moral into the square peg of a TV screen. And, um, and Lewis, I think, respected readers too much to try to preach at them in a way that was was condescending and manufactured. He just let the to the story speak for itself. And even then and of itself, it really had its own gems in mind. So I might have been looking for a ruby, but he had a bunch of emeralds in it. And I think also Till We Have Faces is a book that you can't actually see the gems until you've viewed the entirety of it bring it back to art. It's like you're looking at a, at a Monet. You've you got to get back to the other side of the room and see the, the thing in its totality. Then you can start coming in. Because until we have faces, you have an unreliable narrator in Orwell. You, you can't trust everything that she says or even 
anything that all of the characters say. So it's only once you've seen the whole and you've had got some idea of where Lois is going that you can go back and reevaluate what you've been told. Oh, yeah. So I, I'm very glad you said that because thinking even about the fox, uh, who is Oriwell's sensei, for lack of a better term, uh, he had some really, really good lines in there that were very pithy, and I thought they were, these are great little gems of wisdom. And then there were other nuggets where I'm like, oh my goodness, this is <laughs> heresy. So it's just, but if you're always looking for it as, okay, Fox must be, you know, this sort of priestly figure to Oriwell, then you're going to be disappointed when you realize that he steers her wrong in some in some ways with some of his bits of advice. And so... Uh, you just again, it's important, I think, as readers for us just to allow the story to speak for itself. And and then we can do some thoughtful analysis of it later. Well, I think that little section there will have made Andrew very happy since this is his favorite book. Uh, we've spoken about Surprised by Joy uh, a couple of times. That was actually one of the first Lewis. No, that was the first Lewis book I read as an adult. I think I read about four chapters of it and just stalled. It's like. Where's the Narnia guy? <laughs> you know, this was actually my the first Lewis book I read was Surprised by Joy. And you asked me earlier what my favorite Lewis book is, and I just have so many. Um, but this one I really just resonated with in a lot of in a lot of ways. You know, he read he refers to himself as a reluctant convert. And I felt that very deeply, just even in my young teens wrestling with the Christian faith. I grew up as a Christian or in a Christian home. And uh, I, but I've always been someone who, who is like to wrestle with ideas and thinking through, okay, well, how do I know this is, this is true. And, and trying to figure out why certain elements of Christianity just really insulted my sensibilities in some ways or the Christianity that I thought I knew. And something that I appreciated in Surprised by Joy was Lewis's preoccupation with Norse mythology and even his discussion of Eastern religion, like Hinduism. And I think this is something that some people really, I, I don't know, they find it offensive, perhaps, that that he would incorporate this, at least some elements of fundamental Christian, fundamentalist Christianity, I'd say. Uh, this bothers them. But something that he said about Norse mythology that I thought was really good was he wrote, it seemed to me uh, bigger than my religion. That may partly have been because my attitude toward it being Norse mythology contained elements which my religion ought to have contained but did not. And so that really got me on the road to thinking just about ways in which I have tried to compartmentalize or put Christianity in this little box. And there's this mystical element to it or mythical element to it that Lewis really appreciates. And he invites us to to celebrate that aspect of Christianity, whereas, you know, many, I would say, during his time and even our time are just hindered and encumbered by such an idea that that myth could become fact. Beautiful. <laughs> Uh, I want to talk about Lewis's essays. So let's transition into that from one of his lectures, which was The Abolition of Man. <sighs> okay, yes. So The Abolition of Man. Oh, I love that one. Uh, that one really informed my thoughts on education. It helped shape the way in which I I approached education. I, I was a homeschool graduate myself. I didn't homeschool all the way through, but for my last few years of high school, 
I, I did that and subsequently decided to homeschool my children. And just thinking about what Lewis talks about in The Abolition of Man and his uh, his line about building or creating men without chests and expecting of them virtue and enterprise, and then all of a sudden we're surprised that there are traitors among us. Mm-hmm. I just thought about the power of virtue formation and how we have forgotten that at our own peril or created this just silly two-dimensional or just very uh, surface level idea of virtue formation, even in some Christian curricula, like, you know, okay, it's a Christian math curriculum because it has a verse at the top of it. What kind (laughs) of namby-pamby is that? Like, that is insulting. And so, uh, and, and so I just, where Lewis offers us an opportunity and a taste at the real and, um, and something deeper, you know, and I looked at the education landscape as I was combing through curricula for my children each school year and trying to decide which books we would tackle and just thought about, you know, d- does this book help form them as a person, form their soul? Uh, because that's really what education is. It's an unfolding of the soul. It's being able to teach children and teach adults how to form their loves and order them properly. And so I feel like the abolition of man kind of struck at the heart of that um, by, you know, basically giving us a clarion call to build men and women with chests with a center. And that's a very short book. But once again, I come back to you've got to keep rereading Lewis, particularly works like that. Each time I've read that book, I the vision has got a little clearer. Actually, the very first time I read it, I was utterly confused. I didn't know what he was talking about. And when he was talking about the Tao or the Tao, I had no idea until I got to the end of the book and then saw the appendix. And then I suddenly understood what he was talking about uh, and then immediately turned back to the front cover and started all over again now that I understood what he was talking about. <laughs> Context is so important, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 Here the warning go. I give everybody when they read that book. It's like, have a finger in the appendix as you're going. But let's talk about some of his essays. And I will admit, this is probably my weakest part of Lewis's corpus. I have suggested that perhaps we take a season out and just work through something like God in the Dock, tackling an essay each week. But we'll see if that happens. Uh, But let's talk about some of your favorite essays. Well, first off, if you're going to go through God in the Dock, please have me on again so we can discuss or at least just (laughs) let me talk. And you don't even have to record me if no one likes hearing me. But um, I I love that that uh, compilation of essays, certainly. But the first uh, the first anthology, if you will, of essays that he wrote was or that I read of his was on stories and other essays on literature. And so one of my favorite is on writing stories for children. And so my day job is I'm in communications, uh, namely in communications for public policy organization. And so. I work at a think tank. We have researchers that produce these these very dense, heady bits of research, not bits of research, but uh, bodies of research. And so part of my job as communications is to be able to translate that into a way that is accessible for the broader audiences that we're targeting. Some might call that transposition, maybe? Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and so something that I really appreciate about Lewis, though, is just how he he doesn't talk down to audiences. So even though he might be distilling something or having a particular audience in mind, 
it's not because he is he's looking down on them as if, you know, he is some superior that has to teach them even. So in his essay on stories for, on writing stories for children, um, you know, he, he just talks about how it's crucial. Um, you know, you, the respect for audience is crucial in understanding the way, uh, in which you should approach your, your writing. And so he, he consistently, he just, he, he goes on the journey with the reader. And even if that reader is a younger one, uh, he mentioned something about hating prunes and he tells a story about this. I actually shared a graphic of that exact quotation just the other day because I offered my wife a prune and she pulled a face and I just thought, okay, I know what Lewis quotation I'm going to be posting today. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah, but I mean, like, so he just, he breaks down these barriers of age for audiences, I think, without even trying to, just because his advice in, on writing stories for children is, I write a story that I would want to read. And so I, I think that's just phenomenal advice, even into something I carry into my day job is, you know, I, I write copy or I will communicate a policy idea in a way that I would want to hear it. And um, and so I think that's part of the magic that he's able to sort of conjure is because of uh, when he was writing stories for children. He was really writing them for himself. And uh, yeah. We've had Dr. Stephen Beebe on this show uh, discussing his book, C.S. Lewis and the Craft of Communication. And he has an acronym, HIT. And the A of HIT is that Lewis was audience centered. Audience centered. I like that. Oh, I'm going to have to check, take a look at that book. I'll send you a link later. Thank you. Okay. So that was on writing stories for children. What other essays have jumped out at you? Okay. So this is a. <laughs> A theological heavyweight for sure. And um, this one, though, I brought up with a group of friends of mine as we were thinking through some challenges that uh, our church and our denomination were facing. But it's the essay called Priestesses in the Church? Question mark. And uh, so this is an exploration of complementarianism and egalitarianism, which uh, for your audience who maybe isn't familiar or as familiar with that, it's uh, a long time debate in the church, uh, in, in certain denominations at least, about whether or not women should be ordained pastors and so, uh, or priests, as Lewis would say. And I just thought this one was interesting because I appreciated how Lewis, he formed the argument very respectfully and even said, you know, he, he didn't have any ill intent towards those that were more egalitarian. Lewis certainly came down on the complementarian side, which would say that women and men are equal in the eyes of God, but they have complementary rather than equal roles in certain elements of, uh, of let's say, the family or the church in certain in certain roles. And so priestesses in the church was one of the, was an exploration, you know, in in response to a growing call among those in the church of England to ordain women as priests. And so one of the thing, one of the arguments that Lewis makes on this is that he, uh, he says that Christians think that God himself has taught us how to speak of him to say that it does not matter is to say that all of the masculine imagery is not inspired. It is merely human in origin or else that though inspired it is quite arbitrary and unessential. So Lewis, basically his argument goes back down to how does God refer to himself? 
And um, he refers to himself in the masculine. And so he just he, he kind of uses that as a springboard for his argument that um, the role of priest is inherently a masculine one. So wherever you fall on that spectrum, I just still appreciate the way in which he formed that argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I particularly enjoy that one as well. I think he originally tried to get Dorothy Sayers to write an essay in response to that that movement, and she just said no. <laughs> so he went and did it. <laughs> oh, yes. that's uh, Yeah, Dorothy Sayers is another one. I, I just think it's so neat that he had such gems of uh, contemporaries, Sayers and Tolkien. And um, yeah, Sayers is definitely another one who, as I was kind of trying to form my own thought and pedagogy toward education. You know, her approach to classical education is something I very much appreciate. I also find it very inspiring, the fact that Lewis had, as you say, so many great friends, so many great contemporaries. Uh, it, it makes me think of, say, the Cappadocian Fathers, where when you start looking at the great theologians of Basil, Gregory of Nazianzen, um, uh, and Gregory of Nyssa, you just look through their family tree and all you find are saints, great scholars and mystics. And so it's encouraging that that can still happen, even if it's around a pint at a pub. <laughs> Indeed. You know, one of my goals is to go and visit Eagle and the Child and just do sort of a, a tour of Ireland and Oxford, where Lewis taught and just kind of walk in his footsteps. Well, I read in the news just yesterday that the Lamb Flag, which was the pub that they went to basically after they were kicked out of the Eagle and Child, that's actually shutting down. Uh, COVID has killed their business. So I think it was 400 years old, something crazy like that. So don't postpone the trip too long. I want the pub. I don't care what I need to do to (laughs) gather capital to to purchase it. Oh, that's so sad. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when we saw that Chesterton's house was being sold. Uh, Well, she's my girlfriend at the time, sent me a link and said, babe, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's time we make an investment into history. (laughs) Oh, how sad. Very. Now, the next one you got is Myth Became Fact. Yes. So this one is, I don't know, it's a little harder to explain. Some of some of Lewis's best works are, and I know I referenced myth becoming fact um, earlier in the program and kind of meant it in a different way than what Lewis means in this essay. But, uh, you know, in, in this essay, it's from God in the Dock, or you can find it in there. Lewis challenges the claim that modern man has advanced past Christianity and so he contrasts his uh, he contrasts experiences that um, that we can actually feel with the analysis we might conduct afterwards. So it's likening it to we I am tasting this Ardbeg uh, versus you know the description that we gave of it immediately after. And so you know it's one thing for me to taste it; it's another thing for the audience to hear that description. But when I'm in the middle of tasting it, I'm not necessarily thinking about these other elements of it and analyzing it to death. I'm just appreciating it for what it is. It's the difference between analytical and experiential knowledge. To quote an essay that I have read, which is Meditation in a Tool Shed, where Lewis talks about the difference between looking at a beam of light coming into a shed and being able to see the little dust particles lit up in the inside of the shed versus going and standing in that beam and looking back through it, seeing the sky, the trees and the sun. Mm. Yeah, that that's perfect. That's spot on for this. 
I think that's great. But, um, you know, so one of the things that Lewis does is he argues that the latter, which is analyzing, is merely a shadow of the former. And it's a distant second place in some ways. It's not wrong. It's just it, it's not enough. Analysis alone is not enough. Experiences is, is really, I think, how our loves are formed. Um, and an analysis is an appreciation or a way in which we we communicate that love. Uh, so to love a person or an idea is different than just describing that love. And um, so I, th that's just one element of that essay that I appreciate. And I think this is a really good one because you can apply it to basically anything that you do and enjoy. Just to realize that there are those two different modes that you can appreciate something just by being in the moment. And you can appreciate it in a different way by reflecting on it afterwards. And it's not to say yeah. that one is better than the other, but when you bring those two views together, it's kind of like the, the vision that we get from having two eyes. It builds a 3D image of something greater than what we had if we just walk around with one eye closed all the time. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Well, and one of the quotes from this, um, from this essay is that the more lucidly we think, the more we are cut off. The more deeply we enter into reality, the less we can think. You cannot study pleasure in the moment of the nuptial embrace, nor repentance while repenting. And so I just think that too often we conflate the two, you know, repentance and repenting as if they're the same thing. Um, but, but there are some distinctions. There is the act itself. And then there's the, the, the thought of the act. And, uh, I don't know, Lewis is just so deft at, at kind of, with surgical precision, being able to kind of explore the, these ideas and concepts that so often we just feel are so intangible. They're nebulous in a lot of ways, but he's able to articulate it with words. And this, I'm going to quote Peter Kraft again. Um, he, Peter Kraft said that words are houses that ideas live in. And I think that the way in which Lewis builds houses out of words is just he builds worlds out of words and it's it's something that just draws me back every time and it's funny as you said uh, said that uh, line about words and ideas houses that they're built in it actually made me think of the chapter of fantasies that we read the other night where i spoke about the fairies and the flowers and the relationship between the two <laughs> Yes, yes, that's a you know what? I think I actually wrote that in my notes. I may have like wrote Peter Kraft in the notes there um on that one. But yeah, Fantasties, the way George McDonald is building this world, and I'm only a few chapters in, uh, and so maybe we're at the same spot, but it's just um I don't know. He calls it a fairy tale, which I think is interesting because our modern 21st century concept of a fairy tale and what it is is just so hollow compared to what he and Chesterton and Lewis would say is a fairy tale. We're used and, to the Disney version. Yeah. Yeah. We're used to the Disney version, which I mean, believe me, I love a good Disney sing along. Do not get me wrong, <laughs> but it is, it is a mere shadow of, of the reality of a fairy tale. And um, yeah, I think that the worlds that Lewis and McDonald and Tolkien have built with their words is just, it kind of gives you that that sense that sense of myth that he's talking about in this essay. Um, it creates for you in your mind an appreciation for the myth, and then when we're analyzing it, I don't, I don't. Anyways, I'm I'm gonna just go on a bunny trail there, so I'm gonna stop myself. But 
back to the myth became fact essay. Um, one other thing that I really, really appreciated from this is that the world around us is what we would call, or what Lewis would refer to in the last battle, I believe that that book is a shadow land. And yet we've so often turned the other way, we have it turned the other way around. And so too many of us think of God and heaven as the myth, failing to realize that creation's intangible nature is the result of a myth becoming fact. And so he's just talking about, look, everything originated in heaven first. That's the great myth, but it actually, its manifestation here on earth is the fact that we're living in. So myth is actually higher up in terms of hierarchy of of beautiful and true and good things than the facts around us, if that makes any sense. And that's why I love The Great Divorce, because it gave me really literally concrete imagery to think about that, to think of the things of heaven as the truly real and substantial things. And everything that is not heavenly is uh, ephemeral and and passing and transient. Uh, I, I, and I would say that's the consistent thing that Lewis has always done for me. He's given me a vocabulary and imagery to try and express the things I've kind of wanted to express. And when we were talking about MacDonald, one of the things that both he and MacDonald I found do is they are both wonderful at drawing us into an atmosphere, pulling us into a world. And you're not quite sure how they've managed to do it. Sometimes it's through very few words, but they've chosen just the right words to evoke with inside me. That's, a, that's the E of high T, as Stephen Beebe would say, that he's a very evocative writer, that he manages to get a message out of me rather than trying to put one into me. Ooh. Oh, that's good. That's really good. I mean, but that goes back to, okay, evoking, respecting the audience, realizing that they actually already have that soul in which he can connect with. And it's not that he has to implant, it's not that they're a blank slate that he has to implant thoughts into it's a matter of actually drawing them, drawing them out of, uh, out, out of sort of these layers and layers of the heaviness of life that we so often experience. And that's the beauty of losing oneself in a way, for lack of a better term, in a book. But um, even Lewis talks about that. And oh, I don't know where I, I don't know where that quote is, but it's in one of his essays where he, he talks about how sometimes, you know, people try to lose themselves in stories. But really, it should be the other way around where we find ourselves in it. I'm not quoting it directly, but, you know, we shouldn't try to necessarily escape from the real world. Rather, we should be able to we should look at stories and myths and science fiction as a way in which to grapple with our reality, but look at it through a different lens. Well, that's how he described Fantasties insofar as. After he read Fantasties, some of the light from Fantasties came out of the book and into his real world that he, he started looking at the world very differently. Uh, my wife, she runs Pints with Chesterton, and that's one of the things that Chesterton has really done for me. When I read Orthodoxy, and he spoke about the ethics of Elfland, and he was describing a world which is incredible and mythic and bizarre and like a big game. Uh, she's actually working through Man Alive at the moment, and it has a character called Innocent Smith who who treats life like that. He is besotted at the wonder of the world. And that is incredibly refreshing when you place it against the message of modernity, when mm. the world is reduced just to atoms and molecules. Love, it's an emotion, but it's really just chemical reactions and uh, biological training, and it's nothing more than that. Mm. To quote Puddleglum, 
I would prefer to live in the former world rather than the latter. I even 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 if it's not true, because quite frankly, your vision of the world is just so drab and depressing. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, even what you just said a few moments ago about being besotted by the wonder of the world. One of uh, I, I've re- referred to a couple of goals now on this podcast. So as if anyone follows the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram type three. If you can't tell already, I'm just very much goal oriented and. And uh, one of my goals for the past three years, I've looked for a word to sort of characterize um, and guide the books I read, the things I do, the the activities that I engage in. And for the past three years, the word has been the same. It's been wonder. And once again, Peter Crave talks about this. He refers to it as the economy of wonder. And he says that that's comprised of truth, of beauty, and of goodness. And so I just think about the ways in which, you know, we so many of us have struggled throughout this this season uh, of life as we've uh, as life as we've known it has been turned upside down. And so I've decided to embark on an intentional journey to cultivate wonder in my own life and to appreciate the true, the good, and the beautiful that is around me. And so sometimes that just means I go to the North Carolina Museum of Art down the road from me and just spend some time just absorbing some of the beauty by the Dutch painters. I really like them. I like Georgia O'Keeffe as well and uh, and, um, and and some others. But like the Roden statues or the little replicas of them, those have been pretty insightful, especially his series on Dante's Inferno. That's a little bit sobering. But... <laughs> <laughs> Your, your words there reminded me of a quotation by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, where she said, The earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who mm. sees takes off his shoes. Wow. Please send <laughs> me that quote later. That's, that's beautiful. I will. And Brooke, thank you for coming on the show. And I really hope the rest of your 2021 dreams are fulfilled as quickly. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, If folks would like to contact you, what's the best way for them to do that if they disagree with your analysis of modern art or till we have faces? (laughs) Well, I always welcome respectful dissent uh, via Twitter. You can always find me on there at at Brooke, B-R-O-O-K-E underscore Medina, M-E-D-I-N-A underscore. Uh, You can also just shoot me an email at bmedina, B-M-E-D-I-N-A at Locke, as in John Locke, L-O-C-K-E-H-Q dot org. Wonderful. And listeners, please follow us on social media. If today's episode has taught us anything, you never know what might happen. On next week's episode, we have another After Hours when Matt is going to be interviewing Dr. Chris R. Armstrong, who is going to be making the case to evangelical Christians that they shouldn't just dismiss and ignore the medieval church. And, using Lewis as their guide, they re-examine the spirituality and the practices of that era of church life. And to close, I'd like to thank all of our top-tier supporters on Patreon, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>